0: You're listening to Semper Reform on the radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. I, I do a podcast. I'm n- I'm not interested in your podcast. Folks, these are these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Rift around the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as bashing is itself fashion it's not hate it's history it's not bashing it's the bible jesus said woe to you when men speak well of you for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness It is on, we're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Okay. Can everyone see that? We talked about these very important terms last time to describe uh, the Trinity and also uh, Christology. Who remembers what this means? Usia. Substance. Yeah, that's what. So that's what we had. That's what I had mentioned last time. This often gets translated as substance. And what about hypostasis or hypostasis? Persons. Persons? Right, person. So that often gets translated as persons, persons, or uh, subsistences that's an E um, there's a slight problem with those definitions though and part of this became a problem with the, the translation from Greek to Latin and things like that so this technically means uh, it's the participial noun form of to be so a more accurate rendering of this would actually be being. Um, so let, we'll, we'll cross this one out. That is, y- you have to kind of bear with the confusion and the, the inconsistent use of the terms because it often gets translated to that, but it, it more literally means being more accurately. It means being, that's the verb form, you know, to be, uh, the noun form of it. And uh, another form of it uh, is essay, or t- which is another form of the to be, verb to be, or uh, who who can think of a word that sounds like essay? S-S-S- essence. Essence, yeah. So essence, essence is um, more accurate. These two are more accurate terms of that. Usia. Because it means to be. Now, this, uh, well, that we talked about last time too how existence kind of means nothing, right? It doesn't really mean anything. But if you're, if you're using it correctly in a, in a meaningful way, this in reality means definition. So it's, it's like the definition of something. So there is one usia, one being, one essence, one definition of, of God. Right now, upostasis, We need to break this down. We need to break this down into two parts. It gets translated into persons a lot from the Latin persona, but in the Latin persona means mask, uh, mask that uh, actors wear to uh, to act and to portray another character. And actually, it's also tied to uh, demonic possession because uh, they would. Play, they, that's where the whole uh, white face would come in, they would wipe themselves out and pretend to be dead. And then they would summon spirits to uh, sort of possess them and so that they can act the part. So that's why theater was condemned in the early church mm-hmm. drama and theater and that stuff because of, and not to mention that it was also the false god of Bacchus, I think, who was the god of the theater, debauchery in the theater and stuff like that. So anyway, person that's like very Inaccurately translated as person. This is where people get confused because they think, well, not everything can be a person, but in reality the Greek term means something else. And so if we break down this word, hupo, what do you all think that means? Hupo or hypo? Under? Okay. Uh, under. Yeah. It means it means under. So this is hypo and in language, you know how in lang- well in language, um, <coughs> if you ever studying linguistics or stuff like that, you know that letters the, the words tend to morph and change. So use often become wise in English from the Greek. So hupo, hypo is the same thing. And then this is really uh, under under or sub. sub, like submarine under the water. So that's, that's a more accurate rendering for that. And then stasis, stasis um, that is a little trickier, but it actually sounds similar to an English word. Anybody want to take a guess? Stasis? States. What's that? Like stasis? Uh, kind of. It's a little close. Yes. Not quite. It's actually, the word is already listed here. Substance. Yes. Stance. It means stance, right? So, literally, the word means stance. To stand under. So, there's three upostases that stand under one usia. So, this is where it gets confusing, right? Because typically, ousia gets translated to substance, but substance really means upostasis. So, I wanted to make sure to clarify that. To in the Greek, that's literally what it means. So, it means a sub substance, right? Right here, substance. That's that's ugly. I mean, okay. Can everybody see that? So substance, that's upostasis. Uh, Subsistences, I haven't even gotten into that yet, but um, this also tends to get translated as, as opostasis, but technically that's really what I mean. It's, it's more accurate to say, so there's one essence of something, or this in this case God, and there's three substances of, of God. There's three persons or substances. It's more accurate to say that. Um, any, any questions about that? So when you have the word substance means standing under does it mean yep what is actually standing under um, what it's basically j- in a sense just standing under this term there's three upostasis, standing under usia. so and it gets often translated into substance so that and this 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 word so this all kind of ties into greek metaphysics again greek philosophy aristotle Accidents and essence. So, uh, a substance is an instantiation of an essence, right? It's it's a a hypostasis is an instance of this in reality. So in reality, how many hypostases of God are there? Three. Three. Right. So that's where the whole Greek philosophy comes into play. Um, yeah so that that's it gets very confusing and very technical so and, and then the translations often make it worse so it's good to know what what it literally means, and that hopefully will make a little bit more sense uh, on that. Any other questions about that? All right, so let's. I think that was mainly what I wanted to review. <laughs> let's review, I mean, let's, I think we can start on the next question here. Uh, 41 and 42, I guess we'll work on 41 and 42. So let's go to question 41 of the larger catechism. This is where we left off. So, question 41 says, Why was our mediator called Jesus? Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. So that's pretty straightforward, right? (laughs) And there's a verse tied to that, so let's jump over to uh, Matthew 121. What's that? Yeah, we can... We can pray. A late start prayer. All right, before we read, we can say a quick prayer. Okay. (laughs) Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this new day and new year. We ask that you help us to open our minds, Lord, to be receptive to the truth of your word and sound doctrine learning from the church and the history of the church and its sound uh, distillation of truths and these confessions and catechisms. We ask that you help us to learn and to apply these truths in our own lives. We thank you, Father, and we ask that you also heal those who are sick and couldn't be here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew one twenty one. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So this is one of those straightforward uh, questions that kind of just literally takes it from verse. But I wanted to kind of capitalize on this a little, a little bit. Because there's a lot of cults going around today that, that really love to make a big deal out of the name Jesus. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Modern day cults that claim that Jesus is not Jesus' real name what? Uh, Hebrew Israelites? yeah Hebrew Israelites is one of them another one is the sacred namers of which Hebrew Israelites is a type so some people claim that Jesus doesn't actually mean uh, Jesus that it means it comes from Zeus the yeah it's kind of ridiculous it's actually really ridiculous it's just flat out stupid um, I wanted to read Easton's Bible Dictionary. That's a very well-known... That's a very well-known uh, card dictionary. I mean card, sorry. Uh, Bible, Bible Dictionary. And the entry for Jesus there explains where it comes from, the name. So Jesus, the proper as Christ is the official name of our Lord, to distinguish him from others so-called he is spoken of as Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus the son of Joseph. This is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So that's where it comes from. It comes from Joshua, which uh, was originally Hosea in Numbers 13 and 8 and 16, but changed by Moses into Jehoshua or Joshua. After the exile, it assumed the form Jeshua, whence the Greek form Jesus so that's where the name Jesus comes from so if people start telling you you know no it's not Jesus that's not the real name that's not his real name uh, they're completely wrong because that's it comes from the name Joshua <laughs> it's a Greek form of the of the, the, uh, the name Joshua it, uh it, literally how you say it uh, it's So that is Greek, it, it's a little ugly because I don't write very nice, but this is the Greek form, Jesus. actually i have heard that it's pronounced with three syllables, or something like that. Um, but this is just the Yoda, Beta, Sigma, Omicron, oh, what is this one, Upsilon. Upsilon, and Sigma. So that's the Greek form and I'll throw in a little bonus for you all Uh, let's jump to Hebrews (laughs) 4.8 okay so Hebrews 4.8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So who has the King James? Anybody have the King James? I actually have it. Let me read the King James. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So, back in my fundamentalist, you know, Fundy Mundy, King James Only days, this was one of the verses that King James Onlyists would use against modern Bible translations. Because they would say it's corrupting the name of Jesus into Joshua and referring to somebody else. And this is an interesting passage because in the Greek, in the Greek, the actual name is Jesus. So it's actually talking about Jesus, but they're, they're uh, taking that to mean the Hebrew form of Joshua, uh, because it's talking about a specific event in Exodus. Does anybody know what that's referring to? If Joshua had not given them rest, had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. Anybody know what that's talking about? promised land ring a bell who went to uh, who led the conquest of Canaan Joshua. Joshua right Joshua and Caleb were the two spies so that's what it's referring to here it's referring to the Joshua entering the promised rest that God uh, promised them when they entered the, the land of Canaan and took over it so that's an interesting little tidbit there for in case you run into a King James onlyist, so, like King I used to James be. Always have Jesus in there, uh, but they mean Joshua. Yeah, you yeah you kind of have to, you have to be mindful of what it's referring to. It's an interesting passage to study, but every other translation translates to Jesus. I mean uh, Joshua. Every other translation. The only one that uses Jesus, I think, is the King James. You know, that, so you know the thing is, in the King James, it does say Joshua. But then on the note it says, Greek, Jesus, same as Hebrew, Joshua. Yeah. So yeah. Do that. Yeah, it literally says Jesus. So, that's some interesting information there about... Oh, anybody know what the name Jesus literally means? God is our salvation. Yeah, kind of, yeah, that's basically the gist of it is... Uh, Jesus uh, or the Joshua comes from uh, Jehovah is his help, mm-hmm. Jehovah the Savior, or uh, what is, which one? Uh, online com, that's another good website. They say Jah is salvation. Jah is a short form of the term j- j- Jehovah or j- Yahweh. Yah is sal- salvation. So... This is a, a good little resource for etymologies. For those of you who like uh, words, playing with words in their history, this is a really good resource for free online, etymonline.com. And so, yeah, it means Joshua, Jahweh, Jah ja is salvation. <laughs> so... Yeah. Emmanuel fit in all this that's a good question so <clears throat> emmanuel jesus is called different things right he's called a number of different things those are known as titles they're prophetic titles so emmanuel means god with, god with us. us right it's a it's a prophetic title of what's what he's going to do he's going to become flesh and dwell among us. And so he has numerous titles like that. You know, the the Son of God, Son of Man, um, you know, several, several others, hundreds of others, maybe hundreds, I don't, maybe that's an exaggeration, but he has several titles like that. There's a big poster in case anybody, I don't know if anybody's seen it with all the, you know, names of, yeah, they're not literally names or titles. So it's important to keep that distinction in mind. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, we dealt with that. Carlos, yeah. What about the people who uh, the Messianic Jews and all the folks that they claim that Yeshua is the only name that we should call? Christians? Yeah. Uh, how do we... They don't. They can't even agree on what the name is themselves. Mm-hmm. Yahshua, Yahawahashua, Yahoshua. They don't even know what the name is. They can't agree on, on it themselves. That's a really dumb thing to say, and it actually, it's more of a Muslim tendency, because Muslims believe that you can only fully properly understand the Quran in Arabic, mm-hmm. and God is not like that, right? He redeems out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the Bible was translated into Koine Greek, it was written in Koine Greek because that was the language of the people at the time. So, that's a totally ridiculous like claim, and Jesus has different names when you translate it, in different languages. That's obvious, right? It means the same thing, but uh, just like man is hombre or something else in a different language, Jesus is different in Greek, Jesus or Yesous or whatever. And in Arabic, does anybody know what Jesus is in Arabic? Isa. Isa, yeah. So it's the same name, but it just takes a different form in a different language. So that's really Really ridiculous stuff. And it's similar to cults like King James only guys who say that the King James Bible is the only accurate version. And they even go as far as to try to make King James uh, black, like Hebrew Israelites. They try to claim that uh, King James was black. That's how stupid it gets, you know? They, they get really, really caught up in their cult. I and know a lot of charismatics, uh, and uh, they refuse to use the name Jesus. They'll try to use uh, the Hebrew name. And they'll say, like you said, Yeshua. Yeah, um yeah, yeah, part of the problem is that in in ancient Hebrew or in uh, I, there's different kinds of Hebrew, but in Hebrew there's no vowels. And so there's the uh there's something called man, I'm running out of space. Yeah, I w Y W H W. Yeah. Uh And then there's another. What is it? Let's see if I can find it. I don't want to mislead. It might be two W's. Oh, yeah, it's two H's. So it's actually H. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So that's. anybody know what that's called? There's a technical term for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah tetragrammaton it's just the four letters that are used to represent the name uh yahweh or god and so people tend to they they fill in the vowels right so they they don't really know what it is if it's yahweh or another form is jehovah right jehovah that's a more i think germanic that that was a more germanicized i think uh rendering or translation of it Jehovah, that's where you know t- Jehovah's Witnesses. They also, they're not as picky about what you call Jehovah, as long as you don't call Jesus Jehovah, right? According to them, but um, yeah, yeah. Are, are you asking me or no? like mean, Jesse Defland said he went to heaven, and that that's what they call him Jehovah. Wow. I guess it a or something. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, that's. Um, God. That's where they get Yahweh or Jehovah. I think the guy Jehovah was a transliteration where they put the vowels from Adonai to the Tetragrammaton. Yeah, I think cool? I've heard something like that. Yeah, sometimes Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, Other night, the Jews they weren't they were uh, uh, they didn't like writing down or pronouncing God's name because they felt like that could violate the commandment not to use the Lord's name in vain. So they would replace these uh, words, these letters, or this wor- tetragrammaton, eh, to Adonai, which means Lord. So that's where you often see, especially like in the King James, when it says the Lord in capital letters, that's it's pointing to that. Um, okay, so this <coughs> brings me to the brings us to the next question. So this one is another loaded another loaded question here. We might not finish it today, but uh, we'll get started on it. So question 42 says, why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the office of prophet, priest and king of his church in the estate both of his humiliation and exaltation. So another note that I wanted to I wanted to stress this again the importance why it's important that we study why we're studying these confessions and, and catechisms. As you can see this 100, this 196 uh, catechism breaks down every just about every major term or doctrine in the Bible term and doctrine it defines everything for you and it gives you a very comprehensive uh, comprehensive summary of just about everything the Bible says summarized into a concise question or answer so these are extremely beneficial and useful and we ignore them at our peril you know that i've been in churches where they give little kids coloring books And junk like that to basically babysit the kids while people are in church when what they should be doing is catechizing them with these doctrinal standards, right? Shorter catechism, Baptist catechism for us because we're Baptists, Uh, you know, the the larger catechism, that was more for adults, the confession. This is good, and it's good for everybody because most people are not familiar with this stuff as they used to be. And so, it's really important to be familiar with these and to get familiar with these, which is why we're studying these uh, standards because they help you make sense of the Bible as a whole. Every major doctrine, every major term, it's all defined here. So, uh, let's jump to the verse to the verse that it's pointing to here. <laughs> Okay, I'm getting... First one is Matthew 3.16. Anybody want to read that one? You said Matthew 3.16? Yeah, Matthew 3.16. Who wants to read that? You want to read it, brother? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Yeah, so that's showing the the Holy Ghost. He received the Holy Ghost above measure there, right? Jesus had the infilling of the Holy Ghost like nobody else had before. And... um. Everybody knows what ghost means, right? It's not some Halloween, yeah, spirit. It's just the old English word for spirit. Uh, the next verse here is Acts ten thirty seven through thirty eight. <laughs> okay. That says, I'll start in 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus, the, son of, the Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So that's showing once again the infilling of the Holy Spirit that Christ had that empowered him to do all of, the, all of the stuff that he did in this life when he was walking the earth. And so let's go to the next verse here. Any questions about this? Which chapter was that? That, that was Acts 10, Acts 10, 37 through 38. Okay. Is that it, I have a different one it, oh. mine might be a little bit different yeah, I apologize for that I don't have the hard copy of that um, but they should be mostly similar uh, another verse here that I have is John three thirty four. Yeah. and that one just says for he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives a spirit without measure so again, it's, it's referring to that same uh, concept of the receiving the Holy Ghost, being baptized, and then receiving the Holy Spirit in full measure like that. And then Isaiah, I mean, the last one here I have is Psalm 45, 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's an, that's an important verse there because it helps us to understand what what Christ means. So who knows what the word Christ literally means? Anointed? Okay. Yes. Yeah, it literally means like anointed or like anointed one. Okay, I'm going to have to... Do I have erasers here? Can you find one Sunday? I oh, just using a rag. rag. You could oh, it. rag. Yeah, let's see if we're low on supplies here. All right, up here. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Christ. Christ. Oh, is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's erase some of this. So Christ literally means uh, anointed or anointed anointed one the Christ anointed one So that that who knows there's another term for that in Hebrew anybody knows what the Hebrew term for that is Messiah. So it also means, or the the Hebrew term is Messiah. Messiah. So that's why in in some of the movies, those Jesus movies, they say Yeshua HaMashiach. Mashiach. That's the Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. Um, That's the Messianic term. An anointing, uh, does anybody know what that signifies in the Old Testament? What's up? Uh, how? It was tied to a specific... Well, what, what, it represents a certain action. What, what, what is the action of anointing something? Oil, right? Yeah, you yeah. basically you put oil on it, and uh, it's the act of putting oil on something... And so in in the Old Testament, they would anoint rulers with oil to signify or it's like a ceremonial uh, proclamation that they are now in charge, that they got us put them in, in rulership. And so that's what it that's basically what it means. It's it's anointed. And so it also represents the Holy Spirit. It's a it's a representation that the Holy Spirit, because when rulers would get anointed, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Right, And so it represents the action or the activity, the presence of the Holy Spirit um, on that person or on that ruler. And so there's an interesting debate about that with New Covenant Theology folks, but I don't know if we should get into it right now. But uh, some, some disagree that they, they believe that the Holy Spirit did not indwell uh, Old Testament believers, they believe that was a New Testament thing, not an Old Testament thing. But okay, so I will say this: you you have to make a distinction between the anointings or the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament, because the anointing of rulership is not the same thing as the or as the 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 indwelling of the Spirit that is in us now. Uh, anointing of rulership was not permanent. Right? So whenever, like, Saul, for example, did the anointing stay with him? No, no right? The Spirit departed from him, and that was a sign of God's uh, displeasure with him, and he was no longer recognized as the, the authority of the ruler. So that was a temporary uh, activity of the Spirit, specifically tied to rulers. It is not the same thing as what happens when believers are regenerated by God's Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that was the case in the Old Testament because we're saved the same way, uh, Old Testament and then the New Testament. There is no different uh, activity going on there uh, with how the Spirit saved us before the New Covenant and after the New Covenant. And that is because the New Covenant was a surety. It was guaranteed to, to happen. And so those promises of the New Covenant were retroactively applied, right? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. Jesus hadn't died yet, but they were still forgiven because they believed in the promised Messiah. And so those promises were retroactively applied to Old Testament saints and they received the same blessings of salvation, but it manifested in a different way because that was a very different dispensation in time in the theocratic nation of Israel, right? So the Spirit did different things back then than He does now. So it's important to keep those distinctions in mind. And that's really the... the, the Science of doing good theology is making the proper distinctions. It's right maybe dividing the word of truth, like the Bible says, right? That's that's how you do good theology. You have to make proper distinctions. And so let's continue with the what the question says here. Okay, so the next part says and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability. So that that's just kind of pointing out what we've already pointed out, that the Holy Ghost is a anointing and it's an anointing of authority, right? The Holy Spirit uh, uh, descended on Christ and gave Him the messianic authority to begin His ministry and to begin to fulfill his messianic role as the uh, promised Messiah and so let's see the, the verse is tied here yeah so we can go we can let's jump to John 627 so John 627 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. And that again is a signifying of the anointing and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And so, that's actually a really important passage because it sounds like Jesus is saying, you need to work for your salvation. Right? It kind of sounds like Work for the food that endures to eternal life. But let's, if we keep reading, so verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Right? So that's extremely, you see a lot of false teachers twisting passages like these to make them mean something that they don't. And this is a textbook example of what Christ using logical argumentation. It's called an ad hominem argument, and uh, one one type of argument. And before you freak out, because I know most people think that that's an invalid form of argument, but there's two types of it. There's two forms. And so ad hominem. Anybody knows what that means? Hard me. Yeah, ad is two in Latin hominem is the man, so it's towards the man, or to the man. This argument, type of argument, uh, there's two types. There's an abusive, so there's an abusive ad hominem, and that's the one where you say, uh, Aristotle was a pagan, so anything he said was false, because he was pagan, right? That, that's, a, that's an abusive ad hominem. You're attacking the character of the individual, making the argument rather than dealing with the substance of the argument itself. So, a valid ad hominem argument, Jesus, the New Testament is loaded with these kinds of arguments. And that was one of them. Because the Jews are over here thinking, what do we need to do, right? What do we need to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus tells them, what you need to do is what? Believe, right? It's an ad hominem reply to them saying, you're not, what you really need to do is not work for it, you need to believe. So, that's similar when he said, anybody think of any other examples that Christ did like that? Comes to mind. Your father the devil? Is that that's, that's kind of right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that actually is kind of, yeah, because they said their father is Moses, right? And he says, your father is Satan, right. not Moses. So that's that's kind of a form of it. Yeah. Another one I was thinking was I did not come to call righteous, self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right. I did not come to those who are uh, well or those who don't need a physician, but to those who are sick. Right. So he's 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 uh, totally mocking the Pharisees with arguments like these. He's he's saying, like, you guys are completely missing the point of why I'm here and what God is doing through me. And so um, that's really important to keep in mind uh, because the, the, the New Testament is full of examples like that. And, uh, okay, any other questions so far? So would you say that that, that form of that mm-hmm. is against... Uh, so clarifies the truth of their- just gives much- yeah, let me, yeah, I didn't explain it. So ad hominem argument is when you adopt the person's assumptions or presuppositions in their argument and you carry them to their logical conclusion or you show them to be absurd. And so it's a form of refuting them with their own arguments. It's kind of like judo, is it? Judo, you use your own opponents. It's like logical judo, I guess, or jujitsu or whatever that fighting style is that. Um, that's basically what it is. You're using your own, opponent, your own opponent's argument against him. The valid yeah. one or the abusive one? The, valid the one. one? the valid one. The valid one, yeah. The abusive one is just attacking the character with no regard for the argument itself. Aristotle was pagan, so nothing he said was true. Even what he said about logic. So stuff like that. Um, in the spirit of social justice, uh, most of you are Hispanic, so you don't know what you're talking about because you're Hispanic, right? Or No, actually, it, white, you white people are wrong. Because you're white, and you know, so anyway, it gets that that's that's the abusive crime because you're attacking the character rather than what their actual argument. Um, okay, so what's the next phrase here? The next phrase is, uh, okay, let me, let me, did we read these? I don't think we read these passages yet. The next passage, let's go to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this is a well, well-known passage that we all would do well to memorize. So in verse 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven... And on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So that's the authority that has been given to him. He's now transferring or, or imparting on the disciples to the apostolic uh, great commission of spreading the good news, right, and giving them the Holy Spirit to continue the work that Christ started and in spreading the gospel and in healing miraculous sign gifts and all that stuff to establish, to, to validate their message because the New Testament was still being written. So um, that was part of the apostolic office uh, that they would do. So that's the other one. I think there's one more here. Romans 1, 3 through 4. Romans 1, 3 through 3-4 says, Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's, again, signifying the authority and the power that He had as the... The Son of God, who was indwelt by the the full measure of the, the Holy Spirit, to uh, with the power to do all of the things that He did, and so. Uh, what else here? So there's a there's an interesting debate, discussion, I guess debate, about how much how much of Christ's activity was due primarily to the Holy Spirit and how much of it was due primarily to the fact that He was the eternal Son of God. Right? So, d- anybody familiar with that? That people kind of go back and forth as to how much exactly uh, the Spirit was responsible for it operating in Christ and because of the fact that, and th- this is what we've been talking about, and also with uh, Christ, uh hypostatic union right because Christ is both God and man in one person and so uh, the union of the two natures is there is the divine what nature. I'm looking for a more spe- he has two natures that's right he has a, a God nature and a man nature right Or uh, another term is uh, substances. the the creeds, they say he's co-substantial with God and co-substantial with man. So he's two substances. But is he two persons, therefore? No. No, right? Because that's Nestorianism. So what is he? He's a divine... What? He's a... Christ is a divine divine upostasis, right? He's a divine person, quote unquote, but because he cannot be two persons, because of the debates centered around Nestorius, the early church and I've been learning more about this. Chalcedon did not resolve the issue. It actually created more issues. And so somebody came along, a really clever theologian. His name is Leontius or Leo. Leo Leon, Leon, Leontius or Leo. Uh, and they don't even know where the guy is from. They don't really know a lot about him. But the ones that I, the church histories that I consulted, they say he comes from Byzantine. And so Leon, Leontius, he was the guy that Justinian, the emperor Justinian, he was in charge at the time of this whole this issue. And he basically used Leontius to kind of force everybody to finally agree on this issue of how Christ can be two natures, but not two persons. And that uh, does anybody remember what his term was that helped resolve that tension? What was the term that he came up with to help res- resolve that tension? The hypostatic union? Or? That was actually Cyril's. That was Cyril's phrase, the hypostatic union, but it wasn't clear enough. Because the person, they they didn't want to affirm that he was an impersonal nature, that, that he was an hypostatic nature. Because if he's an hypostatic, then that means that he's not actually... Uh, you know, in the Greek, in the Greek, in order to be an opostasis, you have to be an actual instantiation of, of an essence. So in order for him to be truly man, he has to be an opostasis. He can't just be, uh, he can't just be a Lucia. He has to be an opostasis in reality, quote unquote, right? So the way they resolved it was they took the uh, the the man, the, 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 the man nature and they said that it's not an hypostatic because that means that it's without an hypostasis, an but in hypostatic so with this literally just means basically that he is a his sub, the substance of the of the man nature is becomes personal or becomes a, a hypostasis by virtue of the divine hypostasis, or the divine person, quote-unquote. So this does not become a separate person. It becomes personal or hypostatic by virtue of attaching itself to the divine hypostasis. Right? And that makes sense, because who came first? The divine. the divine person was first, right? So that's why the subject of the Incarnation is the divine hypostasis and then the, the man nature was assumed and hypostatically to be attached to the divine hypostasis and that is how they resolve the tension of two natures but one person and not two persons so it, it gets pretty tricky um but it's really important to understand this stuff especially when i mean there's a lot of important reasons to understand it because this is how we the church has uh, wrestled with the doctrines of christ and it gets pretty complicated and, and interesting, but um, it also helps in talking to Islam and uh, other people who don't believe in the Trinity. It helps to know and understand this so you can explain it to people and say, no, this is what you don't understand, like what there's, the, the hypostatic union means. He has one person, two natures, and he is in hypostatically in the divine person because that is the subject. The divine, the, the man nature became attached to the divine uh, upostasis or person and became personal that way. Became a fully, fully man by, that, by, by virtue of that union. Um, and so, uh, this, I was going to say something else about that. Is divine nature attached to the personal? No, the, I mean, the divine the upostasis is the subject. That is what makes God, Christ, a person. He's one person. He's the divine hypostasis, or person. He's he's not, he's a, he's a man nature. He has a, a human nature, but he can't be a human person, because that would separate Christ too much. And so, they resolve that by saying, no, he's N hypostatic, so he's, uh, he's, he becomes impersonal as a man by virtue of uniting himself to the divine person. So it's really fascinating stuff. But um, uh, yeah, there's actually a book that we covered in uh, the church history class. For those of you who were there, maybe maybe remember Roger Olson's story of Christianity. He actually has a pretty thorough discussion of all this Christological development. Um, He has some biases because he's a rank Arminian. So you want to be careful with what he says about the reformers, and he tends to be very biased sometimes. But this, his discussion on this stuff was actually really useful. Um, so is Olson coming up with any of this because he's pretty recent. Is he looking back and? Looking no, at this arguments? guy, this guy Leonti, Leontius of Byzantine was from like the fifth, five hundreds. Way back there. The way back when. So, so this, this was Olson's already talked about. Reporting. Yeah. Here's what happened. He's he's explaining it. And a lot of theologians miss this. They don't, uh, there's another church history by Kenneth Scott Laudrette. That's another well-known church history. He kind of just skips over this. I mean, he does mention Leo, uh, but he doesn't really get into the details like uh, Olson does. And I'm sure some of the other established, like Philip Schaff, you know, his history of the Christian church, that's an eight volume thing. So I'm sure he probably covered that. Uh, But uh, some theologians miss this, unfortunately. (laughs) And uh, so that, yeah, it's important to be, that's why it's important to be familiar with the historical development so that you don't get confused, starting with a blank slate and not knowing like, oh, how far did they get, you know? They went, they actually went kind of far. They, they developed it pretty significantly, um, even if not necessarily fully worked out, because Christ, uh, I mean, Olson says that Chalcedon basically helped to establish enough boundaries to where you have some flexibility and expressing the doctrine of the incarnation and, and the two natures of Christ and all that, uh, because they didn't fully define it, they just kind of gave the boundaries, and this kind of helped narrow it a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, there's still some there's still some work to be to be kind of fleshed out on that, because uh, it's a complicated issue, obviously. So, and yeah. It seems like I heard or some preachers say that that the three persons. Never act independently. Yes, right. That is, uh, that goes back to why God is three persons and not three gods, right? Because if God was three uh, independent acting entities or substances, then what prevents us from calling them gods? And the way the church understood this in the Bible as well. No individual, uh, no substance of the Trinity does anything independently of itself, right they all they all They all basically uh, have a role in creation and redemption. The act of redemption is actually a triune act of God. It requires a triune God. You can't have salvation without a triune God. That's why it's heresy to deny the Trinity because only a triune God can can uh, accomplish it, and so. Uh, but the orthodox doctrine is that Christ, uh, the trinity is there's a doctrine called divine simplicity and that we kind of talked about that last time that God is simple which doesn't mean that he's simple minded or stupid but it, obviously it means that he's uh, a single substance he's not uh, composed of parts and so he is one being he is one uh yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, substance. I said substance last time. He's one being or essence. And he is not divided. Even though he has three uh, substances, he's three persons, but he's not divided because they all have the same will. Right. There's only one divine will. They don't have three independent wills acting independently. There's one divine will. And that's kind of what Christ alluded to when he said, I and the father are one. I don't do my will, but the father's will. And Christ, of course, how many wills did Christ have? Did he have one? His will was to do the Father's will. Well, so if Christ was fully human, yeah. did he have a human will yeah. or just a divine will? He, he had two, right? And this was a major issue later on after Chalcedon with the East and the Western Church because um, the uh, Eastern Church kind of denies that Christ had... Uh, two natures and two wills. It, that was the debate about monothelitism and diothelitism. And that's the, uh, that was the debate about how many wills Christ had. And they ended up deciding that Christ had two wills. Because he had to be fully man. In order to be fully man, he has to have everything that is the essence of a man, right? Everything that defines a man or the essence, the usia of a man, requires him to have a mind, a body, a will, right? He has to have those things to be a fully man, um, so, yeah, that's getting pretty pretty involved again. Um, but yeah, hopefully that kind of helps to clarify a little bit. No, gets a little tricky, but yeah, I, sus- I suspected we wouldn't finish it. The uh, question, which is good, because the next part is just about the prophetic, the the offices of Christ. So that's that's a good point to pick up next time, depending on what Ryan Ryan has been out sick still. So hopefully he'll be back. Next time, he's still out of town, so um, we'll take it from from there. Next time, any other any other questions? All these definitions happened before the <coughs> Great Schism, right? Yeah. But at that same time, um, the Eastern Church was already developing. For- I mean, different beliefs or different definitions or... Yeah. until the 7th century or 8th century? Yeah, the, the, uh, the Great Schism, the split between the Eastern and the Western Church happened in 1054. Mm-hmm. And so, but there were stuff leading to that way before. And one of the main issues they took was the add, adding the, the procession, the filioque. Has anybody heard of that? Filioque clause? Filioque, yeah, that's Latin for and the son. They don't believe that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So they deny that. They actually believe it's heresy, I think, to say that the spirit proceeded from the son in addition to the father. And so um, that was one issue. The other issue was terminology, the language, because they were Greek. And so the West became more uh, Latinized, and especially through Augustine. Augustine was a major source of He was a major source of insight, but another major source of kind of uh, muddle headedness because he didn't know Greek, unfortunately. So that kind of got him into some problems when he was formulating his doctrines in Latin. And so and he didn't have a a Greek translation of the Bible. They had a Latin, a really bad Latin translation that just wasn't that good. The the Vulgate, I think. And so uh, but yeah, there was a lot of issues like that. And the fact that um, they also denied that Christ had two natures. They were monophysites. That's the Fusis, the, the nature of Christ. And this stuff gets confusing because, like, you know, nature, Fusis, that's kind of synonymous with Usia, right? Fusis, Usia. So why are they using different terms? It seems kind of like why do they keep picking different terms? But there's, there's, there may be some justification for that uh, just because the relationship of the natures to the person of Christ is not the same as the relationship of the substances of the Trinity. So it's not the same thing because there's only one being in, in uh, the Trinity, but in Christ, there's two substances, right? There's two usias. Uh, uh, um, there's the man uh, nature and the uh, God nature. So, yeah, it gets really, it's a really interesting, it's really good stuff to know, um, especially this is like the most important doctrines of the bible right the trinity christ and christology so it's 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 very worthwhile uh to study and to really try to make sense out of um ourselves and so and i actually wanted to work in power well, I, I i can do it later because i was not getting covered yet. so any other questions But yeah, let's close it up in prayer.